For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench, and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Angie Spoke Podcast. Today, we chatted with Sarah K. Peck. Sarah is someone that we have been watching for so many years, and it was such a delight to meet her and chat with her today. She was actually one of the very first women that I ever knew about that worked in tech way back in the beginning when we were just starting Marvelous. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Startup Parent, a company focused on the narratives that we share and the ones we don't about work, parenting, and motherhood. And she is the host of the Startup Parent podcast, an award-winning podcast featuring women in entrepreneurship, business, and parenting. She also runs the Wise Women's Council, an annual leadership program for women to come together honestly while navigating the challenges of working and parenting. And... Fun fact, Sarah has successfully swum the escape from Alcatraz nine times, once doing the swim totally naked as a way to raise 33000 for charity. I did not know that or I would have brought that up in the interview. I think Sarah's newsletters are one of the best on the internet. They are so well written, so helpful. So if you are an entrepreneur and a parent, go sign up, startupparent.com. So please enjoy Sarah K. Peck. Sarah Peck, please tell us who you are, what you do. Introduce yourself, please. My name is Sarah. People call me SKP sometimes because there's a lot of Sarahs in the world. I run a company now called Startup Parent. 
So I help women entrepreneurs and now parent entrepreneurs deal with their careers, their businesses, their work while they're having kids because parenting is hard. <laughs> Parenting's really hard. I don't know anyone that's said it's easy. Before the pandemic, it was hard. Yeah, this is correct. Before the pandemic, it was hard. And I think we make it unnecessarily hard in America in particular. There's also a lot of cultural stuff that makes parenting hard. And I want women and parents not to feel so alone. And I want people to be able to take a real paternity leave, a real parental leave, a real maternity leave, and maybe enjoy some of the time that they get with their kids and with their businesses. So I run a company. Before that, I worked for a couple Y Combinator companies. Before that, I was a freelancer. Before that, I worked in urban planning and landscape architecture. And before that, I got a very expensive graduate degree that I'm still paying student loans for um, and studied psychology. <laughs> That's so funny. What did you do for the tech companies? What was your role? When I left what I thought was going to be my career and went on out on my own, I did storytelling for places like General Assembly. And then I pitched myself as being able to help with communications and PR for different startups. So I was based in San Francisco and I did some consulting work where I got deep in the PR world where I started to pitch reporters all the time and it just frayed my brain. It's so hard. Like your PR consultants are working so hard. It is really a challenge. And then I got into writing for CEOs. So I would write like about pages and thought leadership essays for various CEOs, help them with their blogs, help them with social media. And then I joined a company called, it was called One Month. My mom thought it was a period tracking software. It's not. It was a company that teaches you how to code and build yes. your own website. We took we so many that, One Month classes. We, that's how, yeah. I, yeah, that's right. I worked with those guys. Yeah, so that was five or six years ago. And then while I was at that company, I got pregnant with my first kid. And I was the only female that got pregnant at a tech startup. And they'd be like, oh yeah, let's go to dinner at 7.30. And I was like, no, at 7.30, I will be puking. Like that's when my morning sickness turns into night sickness and I can't do that. So I thought being pregnant at a startup was pretty tough. I really had some moments where I would stop on the sidewalk and just be like, what am I doing? Like, Who's out there that looks like me? Like, where are the women in tech? Where are the pregnant women in tech? Why are female founders so few and far between? Like, I cannot be the only one. There's more than 300 million people in America. There's 4 million babies born every year. Where are my people? And I started reaching out and interviewing other women entrepreneurs that were getting pregnant, mostly to save my butt to figure out like, what do I do? I had to build my own maternity leave. I had to write the whole policy and argue for it and then take it, you know? <laughs> and I learned so much. And then after I had my first kid, I decided to leave and create Startup Parent for people who are doing parents and startups at the same time. It was called Pregnant before, wasn't it? Startup Pregnant? Yeah. yeah. And then you changed it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. That's right. Yeah, so it started to start a pregnant and then, you know, babies come into the world through more than just pregnancy. And I wanted also to talk to dads and co-parents because you can't change the world for women without involving everyone in the conversation. I think that's so smart. I remember when you were starting and I had started our company, which is also a tech company, when I had an 18-month-old and also did not look like anyone else that I could find and did not have any examples or reference points to know kind of how to navigate that. And I remember taking my daughter when she was in preschool, like to meet with investors and like giving her 
you know, drawing supplies and an, and like an iPad with headphones, like sitting there next to me. And it just being like the most awkward, uncomfortable thing, because we have no, you know, culture around a complete human being in the startup world. It's really like your entire life is that company. And if you have other parts of yourself, like good luck with that. <laughs> it is astonishing because, you know, tech and Silicon Valley love you and there's a big talk about being able to do anything, hack anything, learn anything, and they cannot figure out kids. It's like, they're like, oh, like a baby. What do we do with this? And you're like, listen, you were a baby. You were a baby. You were a baby. It's just a diaper. Like it's just noise. Like if you can't pick one up, then we've got other things we have to learn. And it's just that people have been indoctrinated in a culture where hiding women and children at home is considered normal. And that's bizarre. Right. And so I really I think of all places, the startup world is one where we are invested in doing things new and different. Right. So that should be the place where we come up with creative solutions. And if we're not invested in coming up with creative solutions around kids and families and parenting, then we're biased or more or worse. When you wrote that your own parental leave or how did that was that like a huge argument and fight or did they... Like, what was that process like? No, I loved the CEOs. The guy I worked with, Matan, he and I were like, how are we going to do this? Right. And when I interviewed, the day I interviewed to join the company, I was 30. And I told him, I was like, I'm going to start a family between 30 and 31 and 35. So like at some point, if we work together, I'll be getting pregnant and having kids. So we got to talk about that before I even start. And I ended up looking up a lot of the laws and he was like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to ask? And I was like, well, technically you can't ask me if I'm pregnant, that's illegal. So I'm going to have to disclose to you. And so we had a really good rapport and relationship for like, how are we going to have this conversation? What does it look like? And our default thinking was pregnancy normally lasts about nine months. So this is the most lead time we'll get of all of our projects, right? Like in startup world, things move really fast. And usually you only have two weeks notice when someone leaves and things can change overnight. But like you've got nine months to plan ahead or maybe six months, even three months is a long time in startup world to plan ahead for me leaving. And I was like, if we can't figure that out, we're not that great of a company. So we just we had like a nice ethos and ecosystem. But for the leave in particular, I went out and I researched like what the best companies were doing. And at the time it was, I think Netflix had a really great policy and Pandora had a really great policy. And this was when folks were starting to be like, ooh, four months. Facebook was like, you get four months. And I was like, hey, these are these great companies offering four months of leave, but we're also a team of 10. So like losing 10% of our workplace is a big hit. So we ended up putting together, I think it was six weeks paid and six weeks unpaid. So you could take 12 weeks of leave because that's what we could cover. Because I also had insight. I was with the leadership team and I knew what our bankroll was. I knew what our burn rate was. I knew how much time we had. We had about 12 months in the bank. And so having 10% of your workforce leave for three months is a lot of time. So I did six weeks paid, six weeks unpaid, and then a graduated return for months four and five, working 50% for month four and 75% for month five. Okay. So all the Americans are probably like, oh, that sounds amazing. And to me, the Canadian is like, that sucks. Thank you. It does suck. That is really tough. Um, and in America, that's considered good. So then you start your new company. Can you tell us about the, like, what is the business model now for you? How do you make your money? So I started this business at almost as an accident because the first thing I did was I pitched a book proposal to a literary agency in New York and I was gonna take leave and write a book for a year. 
in the process of writing the book, I interviewed all these women. In the process of interviewing all these women, I realized that with an infinite home and no salary to depend on, I couldn't take on yet another free unpaid project. So I pitched a bunch of sponsors and we got sponsors before the podcast launched. We got about $30,000 of sponsors. And I looked at my husband and I was like, I am going to have to pay some taxes. And I think I've got a business that I didn't mean to start. That was in September of 2016. Then in, by July 2017, I launched a paid mastermind program. So a small group of women leaders coming together. That's the primary business model we have right now. It's now turned into the Wise Women's Council. We have 40 people in the program this year. And it's women entrepreneurs to come together to have really hard, honest conversations. And I love hosting and I love facilitating. I'm going to toot my own horn. I think I do a really good job of it. And I, then I'll let other people speak for it. 30% of people have come back year over year. So they have a really high return rate. And so it's a, a year-long program. Yeah. And the frequency that you meet? It's nine months. So we start in March, we end in November. We meet uh, every two weeks because every week means you're always missing something and feeling behind. And every two weeks feels like you're on top of your stuff, if you will. Um, we meet every two weeks for 90 minutes. There's a small group um, audio only channel where you get to talk and just drop audio notes in. You get six people paired up with every month. And then we have a private members only portal where you can write and type. And Sarah, is it mostly your podcast listenership that drives into your program? Yeah, I sent out a survey after this year's sign up and 50% said my email newsletter and 50% said my podcast. That's the primary driver. And we've expanded into other marketing channels, but it's been organic since we started. I haven't done any paid advertisements. And the podcast has been the primary driver, which has been amazing. My goal is to get to a place where we can open up applications for a week and have 100 to 200 high quality applications and then pick 80 people to join us year over year. So we're still about halfway there. But also, I listened to your podcast about the last year that you guys have been through. And if I grow faster than I'm growing right now, I personally will break. Like, this is the right pace for me as a bootstrapped entrepreneur. That's really smart for you to realize and recognize in yourself, I would say. And also good on you for willing to push back against a culture that I'm sure is giving you signals that that's not an appropriate way to grow a business. <laughs> so... Bigger, faster, harder, better. What do you mean? It's got to be as big as it possibly can be. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm curious your transition. You know, obviously becoming a parent probably had something to do with your decision to go into entrepreneurship yourself. But was there anything about startup culture itself that made you want to do it differently? Or did you know somehow deep down, eventually you would want to run your own business? Oh, that's such a good question. I think I've always had the entrepreneurial bug but I also believe deep down that anyone can learn anything. Like we may have differences in starting skills, but any, I do think that if you want to learn something, like you can do it. And I say that because when I was in graduate school and I was doing a design degree, I was a terrible drawer. I had great handwriting. I will give that to myself, but I was so bad at drawing. And the teachers used to make fun of my drawings and they'd be like, oh, is this Sarah? It's like, oh, that's not so good. It took me a year and a half before I finally could even figure out, like, to link my brain to the pen to figure out what I was doing. And then two years in, we did a blind review where you didn't put your name to it. And I put the drawings up on the wall and someone was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I like this and I like that. And then at the end, she said, who is this? Who is this? And I was like, oh, it's mine. And she goes, no, but I did get better at it. And so when it comes to entrepreneurship, 
when I was seven, I started a business called a penny a weed. And I would go to my neighbor's houses and be like, hey, I'll pick the weeds from your yard for a penny. And I would make some extra pocket change. And I went to all the houses that had terrible yards and they were always offended. So it wasn't the best business I've ever started. (laughs) But then, you know, I worked when I was 14. I worked through college. I worked through graduate school. I've always had two jobs at once, even when I've been an employee somewhere else, because I just think it's a little more resilient and it keeps me interested and curious. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think I've always done it, but I also think you can learn everything. What are the struggles that your current clients have? What are the conversations happening right now? Oh, that is a great question. So we're recording this in the summer of 2021. We're about a year, a little shy of a year and a half into the pandemic. And I work with parents. So a big, a big thing would be exactly would be burnout, burnout and fatigue and overwhelm and exhaustion. And you'll hear I'm coughing. I'm trying to mute myself, but I'm coming over a cold and it's just our bodies are fatigued and broken down. I think parents are burned out and exhausted, but I think there's also Another big realm of the conversation happening that is, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's women who are 10, 15 years into a career, right? They've made it to the senior level of a job that they're in. They've grown in a certain capacity and they're looking to start their own venture and they're not new, but the field is new. And so they're trying to figure out how to position themselves within the new venture and charge enough money and convincingly talk about what they do and really make big strides when there's a lot of unknowns. That makes sense. It's it's a really, we're trying to talk really openly and honestly in our group about how much money we can make, about why we think we should be on boards, how we can take on more positions. Some folks are talking about like, oh no, I wanna work 20 hours a week and I wanna do it getting paid this much, right? And then other people are still trying to figure out how to assert themselves and what they want and use their voices to show up that clearly for their lives. That's really interesting. You know, I think that ultimately when you gather a group of entrepreneurs, especially and often women entrepreneurs, the conversation gets to that space because people come and they bring this wealth of experience into what they're doing. And it is like entrepreneurship, especially entrepreneurship that we we teach and we work with within is, is online entrepreneurship. So even someone who maybe had like a successful 15 or 20 year career in marketing, this is a new ball game to take that onto the internet and figure out how to actually build a sustainable business. And so when you're not working for someone else and the kind of the old fashioned economy is what I think of it as. And so there's a, a humility that I think comes because it's new and different. And I wonder, um, would you say that for your clients that that's tricky, like to navigate that humility? Or would you say that the clients you work with are comfortable being beginners at something? Ooh, such a good question. It's a group, right? So there's 40 people and I can think of across the spectrum, I can think of different folks because we have some people who have been like, they've worked at Microsoft, they worked at Google, they've worked at Facebook, they've started consulting businesses. One of our people within three years started a $10 million consulting agency. And she was like, there's a lot of money to be made in consulting. And I know how it works because I've been on the other side of the table. But then we've got folks who maybe have been in one career and have been underpaid for 10 years, and they've believed what the male-dominant, white-dominant culture has said. And so they're coming out and they're like, oh, I've never crossed the six-figure gap. And 
I am now in this group of women realizing that I can charge two, three, four times my rates that I've been undercharging for a long time that I know what I'm doing, but I don't really know how, like, I don't know how to do that. And so the conversations between those two people is really fascinating where it's like, Hey, this is what a corporation or what a team would look for. This is what they would hire for. This is what their budget is. Nobody is hiring a speaker at $7,000. So you're either doing five or 10, right? So if you're doing five and you think you're worth more, do 10, right? The budget's there. Their budgets are going to be 15, 20K. So thinking like a corporation can help you set those, those levels. But I would say we have both. So I don't think we have one or the other. We have some people who have a really strong background and then other people that are like, oh no, like I've been undercharging for 10 years and how do I make up the gap? Or I've taken a career break, like I've taken two years off to raise these kids or the pandemic threw me out of the workforce or I've been in social work. There's another woman who was a social worker for 10 years and she was like, I am tired of getting paid so little. And so she went and she applied for a job at Goldman Sachs. And she looked at me and she was like, you know, what's great? A company where you take your child to work because the childcare is there and where you can afford to have a nanny and where you get paid a whole lot of money. And I didn't even realize this was possible for me. So those are the kinds of conversations we get to have. I think that's beautiful to have the diversity of experiences and to bring people together. It really does show that the value of being in community with other people. And women benefit from talking about money with each other and they're conditioned and cultured not to, right? We're like people who have power are going to retain that power by keeping other people silent. So when we have conversations around money, you don't have to say the actual dollar number because people live in different locations and they work in different industries. But what you can say is, hey, I went to salary.com or I went to Glassdoor and I looked up what the rate is for my position. And I feel like I'm getting paid 25% less and I would like to double. And you can talk about the relativity in money, even without putting a number on it, or you could just open the can of worms and talk about the whole thing. Yeah, those are similar conversations that we have in our own community. And I I love talking about money. And I think it's so fascinating that we have just been so small. Women have been just like, we don't think about what's possible. We don't think about wealth building. We think about getting by. What is the minimum that I can take care of my children and take care of my family? What, how do I like put food on the table and just get by? And we're just not thinking about truly like wealth. It's just like, what's the minimum that I need? Ooh, I have so much to say about that. Women are have longer life expectancies than men. Women suffer from financial poverty due to divorce. The divorce rate's like 50%. And women are discriminated against a lot in old age. So now's the time to make your money right now as you're listening. And I want my own money. I want a lot of it. And I want to keep it and I want to use it well. So when I was 18 is when I started saving my own money. I've always saved about 10% of whatever I've earned, whether that first job I made in the 40s. And this is with $100,000 of student loan debt in America. So I was scraping by. And I still taught swim lessons on the side and tutored high school kids on the side to try to make it work. Um, My goal was to have $100,000 saved by the time I turned 30 and a million dollars saved by the time I turned 40. So that if I wanted to, I could retire between 45 and 50. And then if my plans got off track, like, oh, with a pandemic or something, I could still have the savings I needed by 55 to be able to live off of a million dollars. And I think saving a million dollars is a reasonable and achievable goal for a lot of people, a lot more reasonable than you think. If you have some fun with numbers and spreadsheets, I love looking at compound interest. It's a really, really cool tool. 
And the way I would tell people to start and the way I talk to my brothers and sisters about it and my friends is find your first $500 a month. And you can do that by trying to earn $250 more and cut $250 from your expenses. $500 a month is $6,000 a year. You can put that in a savings account. You can earn it and accrue interest over time. And it'll be magic what happens in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it's safety, right? It's safety for your own being as opposed to relying on partner men typically for the money. I totally agree. And I don't think anything is guaranteed and the exact same mindset as you, Sarah. And I think that it's not something that we're often comfortable talking about, especially those of us that consider ourselves like caring, empathetic people. Like there's also a lot of shame that is showing up around our relationship to money. I come from the nonprofit background and academia where there is a lot of pressure to sort of to stay small and to make sure that your time and your energy and your money is going into the causes that you're put on this planet to serve. And so it's been a long education for me to get comfortable with the idea of making a lot of money, having access to a lot of money. How do you leverage wealth and resources into change? Because when you're working in that system and not the one being the donor in that, in that relationship, it's hard to think that you have any right to those resources. It's really hard. And the mindset stuff that comes with it is so personal and comes from our family stories, what our early employers taught us, what our school taught us, what the patriarchy taught us, whether we like it or not. It's a real challenge. This podcast is brought to you by Marvelous. Marvelous helps you build and grow your own courses, memberships, and live streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. If you're looking for a simple, beautiful, custom branded platform to build and grow your online business, you can learn more at heymarvelous.com. So we've had a conversation recently with one of our clients around like, it was a big long story, but then she ended up saying like, well, maybe I'm just not going to do it. It's too hard. And it was like, but then the patriarchy just won. Do you not understand? Like you need the money, you need the platform to speak and to earn the revenue and to build the business that you want. If you stop, only white men will have the money still and the power. And it's like, we cannot use this against ourselves. Like we have to go for it, I think. And these conversations are so important that sure, it is so much easier to not try so much easier emotionally just to kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm a victim. It's tough out there versus like, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to build the business. I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep pushing for my beliefs. I'm going to earn the money that I want. Not even a matter of deserve. It's like, I want this, right? Otherwise it doesn't change. hundred percent. And there's something magical about money, which is really hard to understand, but it's not one lump sum. It's not like there's $100. And then if you take 50 of those, you're taking them from everyone else. Sometimes in some ways you can actually invent it and create it. Because if you create a new business where people want things, then you get to hire more people and you get to pay more people. Like it's a really magical space. The pie doesn't stay one size. It can expand. That's what recessions and contractions and growth periods are all about. And so for me, when I think about making more money, I think about being able to hire house help and nannies and all the people that I want and babysitters, but pay them a really great wage because the work they're doing is important. 
And the more money that I can make, the more people I can pay. And the more I can take invisible work and invisible labor and make it visible and seen. We can have big conversations about capitalism and like what the flaws of it are, but we do live inside this capitalist system right now. And so I see it as a tiny moment of active, not activism, maybe like advocacy where I'm like, no, I'm going to pay my babysitters and my household cleaners like double minimum wage because they're taking care of children and doing hard manual labor. And I get to do that because I've created all this value that other people are relying on and are thanking me for over here in this part of the world. It's so funny because I think you can make the argument that it's advocacy and activism. When I think about who has access to resources, you know, we have this conversation all the time, but I'm going to keep talking about it until it changes. And so like, I have a huge problem with family foundations and just like how social purpose gets funded and who gets to make those decisions. And why does someone who is a relative of you know, like the founder of Ford Motor Company have a smarter some mind towards solving global problems in the world. You know, why does Bill Gates get to decide how we eradicate malaria or whether that's the choice of where his resources go versus combating climate change? And I have this huge issue with, you know, it's our tax structure really that enables wealth to accumulate at certain rates with certain groups of people and, and tax shelters to exist and, you know, the whole system in place. But like, No, I want, like, I have a really strong position. Like, I want to get to decide what gets funded. I feel like I spent two decades of my life in the climate space, and I have so many ideas of where to put resources to deal with climate justice problems, for example. And it's it's actually, for me, it is a point of activism to make a lot of money so that I can help direct those resources because I think a lot of them are currently misdirected. Dang, I'm just going <laughs> to snap my fingers and say yes. Point that you made, Sandy, about someone who said it's too hard. I will tell you one of the things that I've done in my path in entrepreneurship, try to help my mind along as much as possible because we can be limited in whoever whoever built our minds, our parents, our school systems, right? It's not necessarily our best stuff in there. So a question I ask myself when I'm stuck is, how can this be easier? And I try to just sleep on it for a couple of nights because sometimes I'm looking at something and I think it feels really hard and overwhelming and I'll just wait seven days. How can this be easier? How can this be easier? Because sometimes there's a path where just like if you're watching this video, I showed up and I was like, y'all, I am not fancy today. I'm just in my clothes. I'm going to throw this necklace on really fast. How can it be easier and still be really effective is something I like to meditate on. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a great question. And I'm going to steal it and use it in our community. I think that there is an assumption that it is hard, right? There's always an assumption that it's hard. And so it is like, it's way easier to lay on Netflix on the couch. That's way easier, right? So absolutely, you have to put some effort into building a business and earning some revenue. But I think you're right. It doesn't have to be as hard as our brains want us to believe because... I think our, our minds truly like, don't do too much, you know, don't go above and beyond, just like stay where you are, do what you're doing. It's much more efficient. Yeah. In terms of entrepreneurship, one of the ways things can be easier is let's say you have 10 clients, if you're in a service-based business and you can raise your rates every January and July. And if you're overbooked and you're like, oh, I need to make more money. I've got to make more money. I'm going to have to like take on a new client. Actually raise your rates for your existing 10 clients. Tell them it's the turn of the fiscal year, raise your rates, maybe you'll lose one and still make more money. 
Right. I think the answer that we always say is like, just make more money. Like that's always the answer. People are always contracting and holding and saving and cutting. And we're just like, make more, like don't cut, make more. And that that's a great example of one way. And people have a hard time doing that with existing clients though, right? They want to just for new clients, I'll raise my rates, but for existing clients, but that's more service-based, I think. I just thanked my contractor for raising her rates because I started to get into the place where I was like, oh my goodness, she is so good. And she charges way too little. And I, she's probably going to have to work with five other people. And I want her to work all for me in the future. And I was like, hmm, how much would I pay her? And I was like, oh, I definitely pay her 10 more. No, I'd pay her like 20 more dollars an hour. And I had that thought. And then she emailed and she goes, hey, I haven't raised my rates in two years. I'm going to raise them in July. And I wrote back all caps. Good for you. Thank you for doing this. I'm so proud of you. Right. If you do great work for people and you send them a note, you say, hey, it's been a year since I've raised my rates. I'm going to be bumping it up by 5%. I'm going to be bumping it up by 10%. Whatever it is that you're raising them by, here's what it's going to be. If you want to adjust your packages, let me know. If not, I'll send you the new invoices at the end of July. If you adopt the attitude where it's natural and easy, even if it doesn't feel that way perfectly for you, but you say, hey, listen, like I've learned, I've, I've gained these new skills. I'm doing these new things for you. You can raise your rates. You totally can. Yeah. And then the mind is like, oh my God, but then they're going to hate me and they're going to think I'm greedy and I'm going to like that. That's what women do. So it's like, be ready for that. And you have to, there's a little mindset work to be able to calm those voices that are going to tell you how wrong you're, you're doing it. Then there'll be one person every five years that actually says that to you. They will, right? There's one person. It's not everyone. There are people who will thank you. And the thing is, is that I will get these emails on the same day. People who are angry at me and people who thank me, Right. And you have to remember the person who's angry, it's not really about you. They're frustrated for another reason. Maybe they can't pay their bills. They can't do this. It doesn't mean the work you do is invaluable. If you can like exhale and sit with it and be like, they're angry and they're allowed to be angry, right? They're angry. They're allowed to be angry. They're allowed to be a human with emotion and be like, hey, I'm so sorry. This wasn't the right fit. I can recommend somebody else. Maybe we can negotiate a package for the next six months to help you meet your goals. I'm here for you. I want to help. I won't raise my rates till the end of the year. But then at this point, they're going up because that's what we got to do. I also think that's like one of the biggest feminist acts we can do is to raise our rates or be happy to pay the rates like you just described when someone comes to you and they've increased it to celebrate that increase. It's like one of the best feminist acts that you can do. We just had a client, not a client, a contractor who I just checked in. Is it US dollars or Canadian? And she said, it's US. And she's like, but I can charge you Canadian if you want. I was like, oh, hell no. Like we're paying full on US dollars. Like, nope. Right. I could have taken advantage of that situation, but she's good. And for the exact same logic that you just laid out, it's like, no, we'll pay U.S. Yes. I like paying other people, right? It gets to be fun. I do have one person that's coming in that I like, I have this stretch goal of somebody that I want to hire and I can't quite afford her yet because I'm bootstrapping. And I told her, I was like, I am going to do what I can this summer to figure out how I can close that gap so I can hire you in October. That's what I want. Right. And now I have like a little motivation and a goal. I'm like, okay, I know how much I want to make by October. Well, I was just going to say that I think this is the difference between running an actual business and being in the startup world where they're not actual businesses and it's it's outside funding that sort of determines pricing. So I think that this is why actual businesses and service-based businesses and online businesses are so beautiful and interesting to me. It's because in the startup world, things are artificially 
priced low or at nothing because the, you know, the price comes in other ways. And so I think that the, just, you know, being in that space ourselves is something that's tricky for us and troubling for a lot of reasons. That's like a separate conversation. So as you two are talking about this, I'm just sitting here kind of fuming on the side saying like, yes, but we also have, you know, other aspects of our economy that don't function like this because we're taught that, um, technology should be free or really cheap. Um, And then we pay obviously with our privacy and our data and our attention spans and all of those other things. It's so true too, because at some point you make enough money. I'm not there, but I've spent time thinking about it because I wonder what it's like. I'm like, is that going to be as much as it's cracked up to be? Like once I've made, you know, the money to my level of wealth, my goal is to have a second house. I want to have a vacation house that I can host retreats in where I can gather people together because I love people and I love cooking dinner for people. That's my goal. And I also don't want to be in poverty in old age. But after that, like what else is there? And I don't need a plane. I don't need like private vacations. I don't like, I don't want any of that. Aside from the climate trouble, I don't mind if you want what you want. So I think about it and I'm just like, once you have a certain amount of money, and I do work with a couple of people like this, they've been through a couple of startups, they've exited, and they now have a lot of cash and they're wondering, what do I do? Like, what do I do with myself next? One of the questions is, well, I can become an angel investor, right? You look at your money portfolio and your wealth management and you look at it and you say, well, I can put it in the stock market or where else can I put it where it grows? And one of the places you can do it, there's like this special class of investing in venture capital and you have to get you know, approved for it. But the returns, it's kind of like gambling, but the returns could be miraculous. But that's the incentive structure that we have with people with lots of money investing in these basically like trying to find hockey stick growth in the startup world. But I think what you're saying, it messes up the business building in the early days. Cause you're like, we, we've got $7 million or we've got, you know, a hundred billion dollars. We can do all of this stuff. And it's really hard because then you're not bootstrapping. You're not actually building something that works. You're not validating in the same way. And I think the metrics can really kind of flummox people. Yeah, no. And then it it creates a system in the market where there are bootstrapped or actual legitimate companies competing with venture backed companies. And there's this attrition that happens and this sort of, you know, winner takes all. And then what if the venture backed company kind of fails or isn't successful, then the entire industry is essentially decimated because those other companies then get, you know, knocked out because of artificial manipulation. So like, I think that that's part of why I think we need, this is like kind of going off on a tangent, but like more women in tech and underrepresented people in tech and in the startup space, because otherwise like it's very tricky to get the needs of those people met in what gets built and what we all use in our day-to-day lives. And so it's like, I'm still deciding my opinions on all of this. And we're going to be talking more about this on the show, but like, there's a sense you kind of have to play the game if you want to have your interests represented in the market place because otherwise like the imbalance is so unfair that it's almost impossible at this point for bootstrapped companies in certain sectors to survive. And so, you know, this is our story and this is like the constant trade-off that we're making in our decisions about growth and like the kind of company that we've built, but it's actually a moral dilemma because it's like, okay, well, we, you know, we know that we serve a group of people really well and we put the years into building product market fit. And yet it's so easy for copycat organizations to come out of accelerators and to get 
millions of dollars in venture, like no problem. There's way more money to put into companies than there are viable company ideas right now. And so like, how do actual businesses compete? I think that this is going to be something that we have to reckon with as a culture. And I worry that this kind of outside funding is going to start to corrupt kind of other sectors as well. Now that tech is everything, right? Like everything is tech. Yeah. So it's going to decimate competition. Yeah. Yeah. It's creating artificial monopolies. We're terrible at regulating tech monopolies. Like as we've seen with Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, like we're terrible at actually policing anything that those companies do. And they were only able to rise to the power that they've gotten to because of these infusions of cash that allowed them not to be actual businesses for, in some cases, decades of time, you know, a decade or more. So anyway, that's just a side point. And not to suffer penalties when they fail. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Because they're too big to fail. Oh, I want to ask you about this. I can't wait to hear your opinions about this as they unfold. And I love what you said about like, oh, I'm still developing my opinion on this because I feel so much in the same boat where I'm like just eyes wide open learning and then also worried and optimistic, but worried mostly. Yeah. All right, Sarah. So at the end of every episode, we ask our guest to share a joy. So something that's bringing you joy in your life right now and a tool that can help our listeners hustle in their career or business. Mm -hmm. Joy is going to be chocolate and the swimming pool. Wait, you have to share more about you have chocolate in the swimming pool? No. Yeah, no, just oh, two. Both, two, two. So I okay, two. I was like, I like what one. are these chocolate sorry. swimming classes? Because I, I need to get in on this. <laughs> no, no, sorry. Yes, yes, chocolate every day, all day. I love chocolate. I can only have so much caffeine, but then I like boost it with chocolate. And the swimming pool, because it's starting to get really, really hot for the summer, I also just feel better in the water. I feel like myself, my brain, my mind gets so scattered and spread out. And then when I get in the water, it's like I recollect myself. And I, I'm like, oh, those are my thoughts right? I can think again. Yeah. I love it. Um, and the hustle? Hustle. I think the control key on your keyboard, control <laughs> F. Because. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I mean, it's, just so it's just so good. <laughs> so like if you're on a sales page and you're trying to figure out how much it costs and you can't find it anywhere because you have to scroll because it's, you know, a 15,000 word sales page, just do control F for the dollar sign and you'll find the price. Um, Because people always hide it. Control F for the word, control F for episode. Like just finding stuff on web pages is my secret superpower. Really Um, good one. That's really good, Sarah. Okay, great, great. Um, Related to that one is text replacement. So I, I put in a lot of snippets on my email and just straight on my Mac so I can do text replacement. Um, and send things easier. Cause I have, I have, if people want, I have a whole book of scripts for how to ask for more money, how to um, convince people of things, how to be really kind, how to be really clear. And um, I save them all in my text editor so that I don't have to think in the future, I could just kind of steal them from my you past sh- self. You should sell that, <laughs> sell like the packet of snippets. Like there's another business idea for you. Like sell the, sn- the packet of snippets. I thought you were. I know. I'm like, where idea. do I buy it? How can I get it? <laughs> I have a little ebook called, it's called Sticky Situations. Um, and it's on my site, Sarah K. Peck uh, slash mini books. I'll send it to you as a link. But I, that, it's all, that's all in PDF form. It's not like, you know. Right. So there's the opportunity. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm going to tell my I husband see, about that. He keeps I've wanting to app. start a side business with yeah, me. Yeah, like seriously. No one has time Ooh, to write app. anymore. Yeah. There's an app for that. 
Yeah. So I would do the way that we do snippets um, in our text keyboard is to start with a period because nothing starts with a period. So you won't ever like replace it. And so like period, period, and then like our address, you know, all the fill in the blanks for all of those. But I would do period, no one, no two, no three, no four, no five. And you could just get your five different scripts for saying no, because I've got those. Like one of them's like, thanks for thinking of me. That's not a good fit. Sorry. Like, <laughs> so I would do that. Oh, I love this. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's, that's sellable for sure. I will be sale number one. <laughs> so where can people find you, learn about you? Yeah, so I've been blogging on the internet since 2010 at Sarah with an H, kpeck.com. Um, and then my company is startupparent.com. And if you look for me on Twitter or Instagram, it's the same thing, Sarah K. Peck and Startup Parent. And I would just really encourage everyone to join your uh, newsletter, your email list, because it's really, I mean, obviously you're a writer, so it's beautifully written, but it's just, it's like one of the best things that show up in our inbox, I think. So for real, for real, it's like legit, interesting, full of value. You know, it's smart. There's like intelligence. It's helpful. It's all the things. So yeah, everyone should be on your newsletter. It's a than a reader's newsletter for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you like thinking deeply, which this is like the ethos of your whole podcast, right? This is who you you are. Um, SarahKPeck.com slash newsletter. And then SarahKPeck.com. I mean, sorry, StartupParent.com slash newsletter. Also, in terms of the hustle, uh, I put a lot of fun things on my website. So like slash hug, will give you a hug. And there's other secret things all around there. So if you ever want to do fun things with your website, you can... <laughs> Just add fun pages to your website and then delight love, people by sending them there. Jenny will I love, love that. Oh my you'll gosh. really love this. Okay, okay everyone just wow. go there. SarahKPeck.com slash hug okay. or hugs. What do I have here? Hug. Singular mm -hmm. hug. Yeah. Yeah. Love and it. there's stuff, there's like Easter eggs that I built when I was uh, 10 years ago. So there's stuff all over there that I don't even remember. <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for sharing your ideas with our audience and for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah.